Hi, my name is Paul Podolsky, and I am the host of Things I Didn't Learn in School, about many of the important lessons that we pick up after our formal education is over and turn out to be just as important. Enjoy. My guest today is my friend, Greg Taylor, who I first met almost 40 years ago, and is today a parent, an educator, and he's also served as a minority achievement coordinator and a facilitator of courageous conversations about race and equity in classrooms. Greg, welcome to Things I Didn't Learn in School. You and I spent four formative years together in the same high school. And since then, you've gone on to big things in education. And I thought you would be fascinating to come on the show, talk about an educator's perspective, not only on challenging kids, but all the topics we talk about here, which is you know, what, what you've learned about teaching school that you didn't learn in school. And obviously, your thoughts on what's going on right now and a little bit in Washington, D.C. So let's just let's just go in chronologically. Tell listeners who you are, where you grew up, what you're up to now. So my name is Greg Taylor. I grew up in Washington, D.C., actually northeast Washington, D.C. Paul explained that he and I met each other at, in high school, uh, where the high school was... class, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> you have a great memory, because <laughs> it's, it's been a while. But, you know, we, we met each other at, at, in high school. My situation was a little different, because I lived in a neighborhood across town from the high school, and economically and socially, you know, I was different in a lot of ways. You know, one, I've been African-American, and two, not necessarily, you know, having the money that other students had at the school. Mm-hmm. So a lot of my high school years, I felt like a fish out of water. You know, I was catching a bus in the subway and another bus to come across town, um, spend the day at school, and then the whole thing, <laughs> the, the opposite in the, at the end of the day. So my experience was a little different. I got to see from one end of town to the next every day in my commute. And that was interesting to say the least. For sure. And I want to spend some time talking about that. And then you went to college and then you, I guess, and then graduate school as well. And then got into education where you've been your whole career. Yeah, since 1993, I've been an educator. Sort of my entry into education was, is a bit of an odyssey when you, when I look back on it. It really started after I gotten out of school uh, the first time. I was a psychology major, and I ended up working in the summer for uh, one of the summer camps, the D.C. Public School summer camps. So I had no idea, you know, I wanted to teach or anything, but enjoyed the experience with the students. One of the teachers who worked at the camp asked me, hey, you know, there's a position that's going to open up at my school. Would you be interested in doing it? And the position was actually as an office assistant for one of the D.C. public school's science programs that just happened to be housed in an abandoned wing of a a school in D.C. So I decided to do that, was an office assistant, basically, for the model science program in D.C. And from there, the principal of the school pulled me aside one day and said, you know, 
I noticed how when you walk through the building, you talk to the students, and I noticed you have a good rapport with them. Have you ever thought about teaching? So, you know, at that point, you know, I was like, you know, never really thought about it. But we talked some more, and then I ended up going back to school as part of the D.C. Alternative Certification Program. And that was in 93, and I've been teaching ever since. And what grades, what subjects? And then I guess you've been doing administrative stuff as well. I haven't been an administrator per se, but most of the grades have been elementary, upper elementary. And I've also had the opportunity to teach adults, you know, uh, throughout the years. I ended up working at the Carnegie Academy for Science Education for a few years. So I was a mentor teacher there. And then other programs, other schools that I've gone to, I've always been sort of like a teacher leader. So I've been able to teach other, other teachers as well. And then maybe about six years ago, I became a minority achievement coordinator for Arlington Public Schools. What does, that, what does that mean for those of us who are in education? In that capacity, what I did was coordinate programs and services that were meant to eliminate the achievement gap. So I did, you know, it was a, a little bit of a, a everything. It was sort of a jack of all trades. So in addition to supporting students academically and socially, emotionally, I also was a liaison between uh, community organizations and different schools, facilitated conversations about race and equity and the, the role that race and equity play in schools for the entire district. And pretty much that was it, just coordinating programs that would help those students uh, raise their achievement and support them socially, emotionally. And that was a huge part of it. Okay, so there's a lot to talk about here. So let's let's go back to the beginning of the space. So I have very strong memories of that period of time. So for listeners, this is the 1980s in DC. And you know, my recollection at the time, I don't know if this is too strong or too, or too charged a word, but the racial divisions in the city, which still exist, were even stronger then that it was almost apartheid in the separation that there were like white areas of town, black areas of town, and there was almost no crossing between the two of them. I guess you were doing it every single day. And I had a summer job where I did it too, the opposite way. And I remember it just was head spinning. Is that what your recollection of it was like? And what was that daily journey like? The recollection is spot on. What most people don't understand and people who don't live in Washington, D.C., if you look at the demographics of the city, it's actually, you know, a majority minority city, especially in the 80s. But D.C. is one of the most segregated cities in the United States That's uh, right. for, the, for the same reasons that you, you mentioned. Everybody will work together, but then they especially back at that time. There weren't places where there were like mixed neighborhoods. So there were white neighborhoods and there were black neighborhoods. And then there was affluent black neighborhoods and affluent white neighborhoods with very little mixing of where people live. You know, when people went out for entertainment purposes, there were white clubs and there were black clubs. And sometimes, right. you know, you would sort of mix in and mix around. But for the most part, D.C. is like a really, really segregated city. And it's segregated by not just race, but economic status as well. When I was at Murray, it was a, it was just a different feeling. It was our, our high school that we went to. Yeah. And then, uh, in the neighborhood, the actual neighborhood itself, I just felt out of place, but it seemed like on campus, it wasn't so much that way 
for the most part, one thing that I do remember is not really seeing myself in the curriculum and not mm-hmm. really seeing myself, you know, in the faculty even. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if uh, we look back, the faculty that we had at the time, we had the basketball coach, PE teacher. We had a music teacher, African-American yep. male. Uh, we had an art teacher, African-American female. We had a French teacher who was from the islands, I believe. And I think that was it. And then the rest of the African-Americans that I saw at the school were the custodial staff mm-hmm. and uh, custodial staff and the, and the cafeteria staff. And they became like a support system for me and a lot of the other uh, black basketball players that came to the school because they were like our parents. They were like the people in our neighborhood. People mm-hmm. got up and went to work every day. Uh, but then came back to neighborhoods just like the ones that I lived in. So we had these great relationships with the bus drivers and the cafeteria staff and the custodial staff because those were the people we saw every day when we went home. So that was part of my experience there. And then the, you know, what we did, you know, the, the stuff that's getting a lot of attention recently, like the racial profiling, et cetera. And I've heard from other African American fathers the speech they give their sons. You know, if you're confronted with the police, this is how to avoid getting killed. Well, I noticed you said if, <laughs> if okay, we have an encounter. Enough. The speech that I had was, uh, the speech that I got was when you have an encounter with the police, this is what you do. Those conversations happen in, in black families pretty much from the time that we're moving away from our neighborhoods and in a, at an age and a position where we're starting to explore beyond, you know, the few blocks where we live. So anytime we're traveling in the city, you know, back then, public transportation, that was my mode of, of uh, traveling around. So I remember my grandma, my father, my older siblings basically telling me, hey, when you get stopped, this is how you need to act. You know, it's almost like putting ourselves in a box, like almost just you're not human anymore. You just have to follow directions and be polite, even if you are being disrespected at the time. And even if you realize you're being disrespected at the time, you hold your tongue, you say, yes, sir, no, sir. And just be deferential to somebody who may or may not have your best interest at heart. Yeah, that's maybe one thing getting that lecture or that talk <laughs> advice when you're home in a calm setting. Is it the type of thing that you can, you know, there's that, there's that famous uh, Mike Tyson quote, everybody has a plan until they get hit in the face. So is it something that you could, when you were in those situations, could you remember everything? I would just imagine being terrified and I would not have the, poise to be able to put into action what I was being advised. Oh no, we were coached. <laughs> so when I've had those situations, the same things that my parents were saying back then, even today, you know, as a 53-year-old man, when I get pulled over, I know the deal. You know, roll the windows down, have my license out before the police officer gets to my car so I, I don't have to reach for anything. If I do have to reach for, for anything, ask for permission. <laughs> you know, turn the dome lights on if it's at night so the person with the gun feels more comfortable with you. <laughs> so, the you know, they don't they aren't fearful that you have something in the car. So they, you know, avoid getting shot by, again, making somebody who has a weapon and who's been trained to use that weapon, making them more comfortable so that you can leave that encounter alive and intact. So switching gears a little bit, the uh, you were a psychology major, and you've worked a lot with 
students over these over these years. What is, do you think, the long-term psychological impact? And maybe this is a reach, and if it's not something you've thought about, you know, fine, but I'm, I'm curious. One of the things I talk about in the book, Raising a Thief, is just trying to unpack our daughter's psychology and how what would initially seem to me like a relatively small thing, I was wrong, but relatively small thing that she was so mistreated her first 16 months of life, I was like, no big deal. You know, you put her in the right environment and everything's going to get better. Well, I, you know, it was dead flat wrong. So the psychological impact of that turned out to be way, way bigger than I'd ever imagined. So either when you look back at, you know, yourself, friends of yours who were exposed to those pressures or the students you're dealing with now, are there equivalents of that type of shock? And what are the consequences day to day? I've been thinking about this for a bit, especially when we're in this climate that we're in now, the psychological impact of what we go through on a daily basis. I, th I think uh, oppressed groups are great at compartmentalizing. And by that, I mean, in the back of our minds, we know that things aren't the way they should be. And in the back of our minds, we know that we're a target of different isms. But we go about our lives. You know, we go to school. We fall in love, we have families, but then there are incidents that happen, there are events that happen in your life where you're reminded that this country really doesn't want you here and that your mere existence uh, is an issue for mm -hmm. other people. So, yeah, I've had a hard time like the last maybe like six months or so because it's just been in rapid succession, like mm -hmm. some sort of racial incident that's happened over and over again and psychologically mm -hmm. it wears down on you if mm -hmm. i sit still and think about what's going on too much it'll, it'll, it drives you crazy i think all of us are just really good at compartmentalizing and just going on about our business until we get these sort of national events that you know slap you back in the, in the to place to say okay this is really serious right now and I think that my, again, I, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist I have or a psychologist. I have interviewed some on the show, but the, um, and the responses, what they said is, is the responses to trauma, we call trauma, really varies enormously by person, that it's not predictive. That said, as a dad, I will say, you know, our daughter was compartmentalizing, but mm. it popped out somewhere else. It popped out in our case with her, you know, all the stuff I talk about in the book, lying and stealing and all sorts of behavior that is antisocial, basically. Mm -hmm. So she was compartmentalizing, but it showed up somewhere else. So in that, if you think about you growing up in, in that situation, when you were compartmentalizing, did it show up somewhere else or does it just remain in a, you know, I don't know, sleep or something like that? Or did it just stay in a compartment? I say, look at, What's happening with COVID right now? The people who are dying and the people who are being negatively affected the most and, you know, the people who COVID is really, you know, taking a toll on are minority groups and particularly African-Americans. So as we're compartmentalizing, we're also not taking care of our health the way we should because mental health is mm. just as important as everything else because it'll manifest, you know, its way in your body some way. Your physical health, it will mm -hmm. affect that after a while. So we're already this oppressed group, 
Now you throw a global pandemic onto it, and all that does, like you said, is expose what's there beforehand. So if you're really not taking care of your mental health, that's going to show up in your physical health as well. So after a while, that compartmentalizing, you know, it's going to turn into high blood pressure. You know, we we die of high blood pressure, heart disease, strokes. So a lot of that has to do with just the one, definitely lifestyle and diet, but also just constantly being under some sort of pressure from one way or the other. And like you say, it's going to show up somewhere. Mm. One thing that I found so interesting at the time I was in <laughs> Russia and also you know, with my wife, who was, who's who grew up in the Soviet Union, is now a psychologist, was that Russians weren't very therapized. In other words, mm. they, they, had, they had the same problems that, that we had, but they didn't really have as much of the vocabulary just for talking about it. So when you were growing up, and now if you look at, you know, in your family culture, now if you look at your work with students, has that dialogue shifted? In other words, people becoming more therapized and able to name these things. And has that shifted the way people experience them at all, either the general population or African-Americans? Or is that there, there was always language to describe it? I think now, more than ever, I think people are understanding the importance of therapy and understanding the importance of taking care of your mental health. And so much so that you know, there's more African-American psychologists and more African-American psychiatrists. And there's a push for, you know, you see a lot of celebrities coming out and saying and telling their stories of mm. times when they, they went through therapy or times when they've gone through depression and how important it was to actually seek a professional. I think as men and as dads and as husbands, we've been sort of socialized that you just take the world on your shoulder, you suck it up, you keep going. But in the mm. meantime, like I said, we're killing ourselves slowly because we have to let that out somewhere. And, and like you said, it shows up somewhere, somehow. So I've seen a huge shift with the students that I, I teach. I've seen a huge shift with my friends and my family where, you know, it's, it's not stigmatized as it used to be. And now it's like, the end thing to tell people, hey, you know, it's okay to go talk to somebody. You need to see a, a professional. And what? unfortunately, I learned that the hard way. I don't know. I've, I've shared before. I had a, a sibling that was murdered. 2005, my youngest sister was murdered. And oh it God. affected me in a way where I just went into a deep depression for, it had to be for half a year or so. Mm. And at the time, you know, I was teaching but I was lucky, you know, I, I taught at a school and uh, where the principal and assistant principal were unbelievably supportive of me and actually pulled me aside, took me in the office and said, we want you to go to the employee assistance program. You know, mm -hmm. you've been through this huge trauma and we, we want you to talk to somebody and we want you to know it's OK to talk to somebody. Mm -hmm. And then that, that school and I'll name the school Glebe Elementary School principal at the time was Sylvia Taub and uh, assistant principal, who was now the principal, was Jamie Borg. So, I, you know, I can't thank them enough for, in a way, giving me permission to say, you know, you have been through something horrible and it's okay for you to go see somebody. And then the other people, the other teachers there, you know, they wrote my, my substitute plans for me because I, I took some time off. I had to. And at the same time, you know, I just wasn't available 
to anybody because you know I was in this deep depression thinking about you know my sister and you know all the all the sort of things that that affected her death affected too you know my father ended up dying a year later pretty much I believe of grief you know um, at his funeral I'm eulogizing him I end up seeing my mother who I hadn't seen in a while we were estranged for a while and then within six months she was gone so it was like a year and a half where I was like sitting on the front row of funerals (laughs) and all I knew was that you know tomorrow the sun was going to come up and something was going to happen and whatever did happen and you know I'd have to deal with it so you know my own experience with going to a therapist and talking through those issues you know that opened my eyes to a, a lot of things about one how important it is just to Admit when you need help, <laughs> and especially for men and black men in particular, admitting mm-hmm. when we need help and going to see a trained professional when we do, and not a lot of guys in the neighborhood I grew up in, yeah, maybe they would turn to alcohol, maybe they turn to drugs or something else that was destructive, but really they were just in pain and didn't know how to deal with it, and we weren't taught growing up or you know being part of a neighborhood where going to see a therapist was like a good thing. So that mm-hmm. that's changed tremendously since that time. Was there a associated re- with it? I don't think so, because so many people are telling their stories now. And, you know, no, I'll tell my that, story. You were growing up. Well, when I was growing up, oh, absolutely. If somebody had a mental health issue, they were seen as there was something wrong with them or, you know, they were crazy as opposed to, you know, if you broke your ankle or you broke your leg, you would go get a cast. You'd go see a doctor and put a cast on it. Um, you wouldn't ridicule somebody for getting a, a broken bone fixed. So there should be no reason why if somebody has a mental health problem or a mental health issue that, you know, they would go see a therapist. So That's a radical are the If you look over your span of, of teaching, Greg, are the kids who you're, are they having the same type of emotional challenges? Or have they shifted over that period of time? Well, I see in this period, students are having, like, especially now in the age of COVID, there's some different types of things going on. So in addition to all the different traumas that students were experiencing from homelessness to parents being separated to deaths in their family to all the different standard traumas that we all go through at some point in our lives, students are struggling now. You know, I I teach nine and 10 year olds. So they're struggling now just to make sense of what's happening in the world. For Mm -hmm. adults, we understand, hey, there's there's a pandemic going on. There's not really a cure for it. And we're trying to do the best we can to return back to normal. But imagine what a 10 year old thinks of the situation. You know, for for the last since March, they haven't been able to be at school. They haven't been able to go out and play with their friends. They kind of understand what's going on, but at the same time, they really don't. And for some students, they've lost family members or they've been Mm -hmm. displaced out of their homes because, you know, maybe their family member lost a job because they couldn't go work during this time. So they've been put out of their housing at at the time, a loss, you know, maybe lost a job. So there's so many things going on with students. They're under a tremendous amount of pressure right now without the developmental ability to understand fully like what's going on. What does it look like as a teacher when you see that stress manifest? Right now we are hundred percent online. So we're making a concerted effort to make sure that we're supporting students socially and emotionally. 
And one of the things that I've noticed that students will do now is they'll share with you what's important with you. So before we start our lesson, you know, we always start with a check-in. You know, how's everybody doing today? You know, how's your day going? You know, mm. did you do anything? Uh, did you do anything fun between yesterday and today? Or are you going to do something this weekend? And students will share with you, like I said, the things that they think are important. So, you know, a student will will say, well, I'm at my uncle's house right now because we lost we lost our apartment. And they'll they'll share those things. They'll, you know, I'll try to tell them, hey, don't tell too much of your personal business, you know, on Zoom. But <laughs> they're reaching out and they're trying to find a way to reach out and make sense of things. So as a teacher, you know, I listen. And if I can offer any any advice or any sort of comfort, you know, I do. But for the most part, just allowing them to articulate you know, here's what I'm thinking about. Here's what's on my mind. And just to sort of talk them through it. You know, I think that's important. Some of the listeners have kids that have mental health issues and are trying to get help from schools. I know in our case, we, we did try to do that. And it was a battle. I always wondered, like, what does that look like from an educator's perspective? Is it such a battle sometimes to get help for a kid? because? The special education budgets are limited or because it's hard to see or or why is that? I understand that probably got a huge range of things, but certainly with the specific issue our daughter was struggling with, they basically didn't believe us. Hmm. Well, one thing, I think schools have such limited budgets, especially public schools have such limited budgets and such limited resources you know, one school may have one or two special education teachers, but have, you know, maybe 20 to 30 special education students. So trying to identify all of the different disorders or, or try to address those issues, that's just tough just from a, a personnel standpoint. It's important for parents to also know their rights and know how to work the system, I guess how to exercise those rights. I don't want to say work the system, how to exercise those rights. So there, a lot of times there becomes a, there's a gap in understanding of exactly what am I entitled to, number one, and then how do I go about getting what I want out of this uh, and getting what I, th I feel like my child needs. So I would say for parents to make sure that you understand all of the special, I mean, special education laws or your rights and responsibilities as a parent in terms of requesting uh, certain tests, requesting that your child goes through the process of trying to figure out what's happening, going through the assessment process in the beginning. And then in terms of the services, just understand that you're, you're going to have to work with the school as much as possible, especially for something that, that Sonia had, that's such a rare condition that you know, not even... The experts really know what to do, and so only certain people around the country and around the world, for that matter, that understand it fully. You just have to do your due diligence to make sure that the schools you work with the schools as much as possible, and and uh, try to under, you know have them understand. Like I really need your help at this point. You know, I'm, I'm reaching out to you for that. Are there ways to make those conversations more? collaborative. In our sense, in our situation, we ended up having to really get 
expertise to help us. I agree with you. You got to know what your rights are and everything, but it's complicated. I mean, there's compli- I'm not a lawyer. There's Absolutely. complicated legislation, et cetera. Are there ways Absolutely. to make it more of a partnership and a little bit less of a battle? Well, one is the, the relationship that you have with the, your child's teachers is, is huge to be able to talk to them. The relationship that you have with the special education department, but also don't be afraid to have an advocate. You're entitled to that. You know, as a parent, mm-hmm. every parent is entitled to have an advocate come with them to any sort of eligibility meeting, any sort of IEP meeting, any situation. You're, you're allowed to have an advocate. So I would say definitely just read up on the rights and responsibilities. And the idea is for a while, and let me go back to why schools a lot of times are sort of reluctant to identify students with special education because so many students in the past were misidentified and or or certain groups of students were over identified for special education services. In school systems that I've worked in before, I've noticed how African-American students in particular are over-identified for special education services. And now students who are, oh yeah, students who are acquiring language as a, a, uh, acquiring English as a, an additional language, those students are also over-identified or misidentified sometimes because people look at the language issue and they they equate the language issue with some sort of deficit and it's not. You know, if a student is not uh, having issues in their first language, then it's, you know, it's a, it's a language issue. It's not a special education issue. It's not a, a disability that affects their learning. Why are the African-American students identified? A lot of times it has to do with behaviors. And it has to do with the identification process ended up being the child is emotionally disturbed or the child is you know, has a behavioral issue. So that's a learning disability. So misidentified uh, for special education services, you know, that was historically. And then maybe about 20 years ago, um, the identification process sort of changed. And now on at the school level, you have to go through, uh, we, we call it the IAT. It's the intervention assistive team where, if a teacher believes that a student has a disability or there's something going on there, you go to the IAT. And the IAT is usually made up of other teachers, administrators, um, the school counselor. Sometimes it'll be the psychologist there. And you talk about, you know, what are the issues that you're having with a particular student? You talk about interventions that you've tried to counteract, you know, what the student's doing. And then the team will listen to everything that you're doing They'll make recommendations and have you go back, try those recommendations for a period of time. And then, you know, you come back and uh, if the recommendations work, then then fine. If they don't, then it goes to the next level where you maybe go through the process of assessing students, you know, with, with uh, different assessments, basically to identify whether there's a learning disability there. But before... All this happened, you know, African-American students and African-American boys in particular were being misidentified as emotionally disturbed or defiance disorder or things like that. What was the truth going on, do you think? The truth was going on is you were putting these kinesthetic, tactile learners in classrooms and making them sit down and listen to lectures all day. 
And, you know, I would go crazy, too. I mean, I've, I've sat in meetings where I'm sitting there listening to people lecture for hours. And, yeah, you know, I want to get up and move around as well. Or, you know, they, they weren't in the past. You know, the emphasis wasn't so much on hands-on learning. It wasn't emphasis wasn't so much on being cooperative, you know, cooperative learning. So, you had, you know, you had these students who were literally going crazy in their classrooms because their learning styles weren't being uh, catered to. Fascinating. In terms of, so you obviously, you were, you know, you went to formal training to be a teacher and then obviously you were, were mentored, etc. If you look now at what you've learned just by your decades of experience, you know, one of the things I'm, I am very interested in is the things we learn. That's why I call it the podcast, the things we learn that we weren't taught. But obviously, you're in a teaching environment. So what have you learned about teaching, about being a leader that you weren't taught? You just sort of learned on the job. And how did you learn it? Well, the, the last part is easy. I tried to emulate my teaching style after the great teachers that I had growing up. And it seems like at every step of the way in my career, I've always had somebody there who was willing to mentor me. And a lot of times it was people who saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. <laughs> so I, I go I go back to that principal who saw me walking through the school and saw me interacting with the students and put two and two together to say, maybe in the classroom, that sort of natural rapport he has with the students would translate well. And then even before that, as a camp counselor, having a teacher say, hey, there's a position there. There's a position at this school that I think you'd be good at it. So every step of the way, I've had mentors, but also I've tried to emulate like, like the great teachers that I've had throughout my, my life. And in terms of the lessons that you learned, what was it? In terms of the lesson that I learned is that we've been teaching schools for a certain amount of time, for hundreds of years, almost the same way for hundreds of years. <laughs> and from the beginning, there were certain groups that schools just were not designed for. And, you know, to go back to being an African-American male, schools are just not designed for us. And if you look across the nation, you look at uh, statistics, there's an achievement gap where, again, African-American males uh, are sort of at the, the bottom of the numbers. But, you know, we're, we're getting out of the system what the system was designed to do. It really wasn't designed to educate us. And for me to go through the Murray School, an elite school in Washington, D.C., uh, elite high school, and never really had a class about African-American history or African history to only have read, you know, in high school just a, a few black authors, uh, not really have a class where my experience and my ancestors were sort of mentioned beyond like slavery or beyond the civil rights movement. You know, that's a travesty as far as I'm concerned. So school systems, you know, a lot of, a lot of the learning that I did and a lot of learning that my friends and my family did about our own history and our, about our own sense of self, that happened at home. And that, that also happened when I was in D.C. public schools. So once I went to high school and once I went to college, you know, I pretty much you, you have to, as James Baldwin said, you know, pick up 
your education with your own intentions <laughs> because the, the curriculums that are being offered, they don't uh, you know, hold up a mirror to your experiences. So is your sense then that to close that achievement gap, if you had a curriculum that was speaking to the curiosities and the questions of particularly that, you know, the African-American male community, that if you created that dialogue, you'd see that achievement gap close? Absolutely. If your curriculum serves as both a window through which other students can learn about others and a mirror where they see their own experiences reflected, that's half of the battle right there. Uh, you can, as an African-American, you can sit in a classroom from K to 12 and into college. And unless you, you take an active role, you will never, ever see yourself reflected in the pages of the books that you're reading or the examples. And a lot of times you won't see yourself in the teachers that are teaching you because 80 percent of teachers in the United States are women and 80 percent of the teachers in the United States are white women for the most part. So right there, there's going to be sort of this disparity in who's standing in front of you every day, the examples that you'll hear, the references that you'll hear, the textbook companies up until, you know, maybe a few years ago weren't really showing any sort of diversity. And we also have to understand, like, the way textbooks and history books are written, they're written not with minorities in mind or minorities' achievements or contributions in mind. It's, it's sort of a, a singular stories that sort of elevate mostly white males and then at the opposite end of that, that spectrum of black males. So it's a battle. And, and until I started teaching, I didn't realize, like, just how much, <laughs> how much I would have to add to the curriculum, I guess, in order to so that students could see their own experiences in it. That's fascinating, Greg. Let me add one probe that adds a little bit more. One thing I thought about, and it's very much colored by our experience, was also adding to that list, I'd say, early childhood intervention and care. One of the things, and I'm not, again, I'm not an educator, just curious, but I was very struck by what Jeffrey Canada does in his schools which is that he seems to, if I understand it correctly, begin the admission process really when the mother is pregnant. In other words, that early he wants to be creating a situation where there is safety. And then that lays the foundations. And certainly in our case, that was true, which was that our daughter you know, felt so unsafe by that early experience of crazy disruption and starvation, all the stuff I talk about, the multiple homes she was in, that one of the interesting symptoms of what she has is lack of curiosity. Bizarre, but it's true. In other words, she was so deprived early on that she was basically just focused on how do I get my most basic needs met, particularly food, given her history. Mm. But that really struck me because after that, she went to public schools, but they were fine public schools. But it didn't click, and she's white, so it wasn't like the curriculum. It's like it just didn't click. So any thoughts on early child, in addition to your list, you know, that makes a lot of sense what you're saying to me, seeing people in the classroom and the curriculum, et cetera, that they connect to. 
Have you thought about the early childhood intervention? And is that something that is part of the equation or not so much? That's a huge part of the equation, because when you think about it, your parents are your first teachers. So the way your parents nurture you at home, the way what your parents teach you at home, the vocabulary that's used in the home, all those different things, the sense of exploration, the sense of learning about your environment, learning about the world, all that happens in your first few years. So it makes perfect sense that you know, anyone who's deprived of that, they've sort of gone past that, that stage where, you know, your brain is making those connections with those different things, as well as making a connection with, this is my parent, this is somebody who loves me, this is somebody who I feel a sense of safety about. If you think about Maslow's hierarchy, the base of everything is food, shelter, water, <laughs> you know, safety. Right. Right. Uh, and uh, unless you feel safe, unless you're not hungry, unless you're not uh, misplaced, you know, shelter wise, you know, I've, I've taught students before and still do students who live in shelters, uh, students who are food insecure. And it's difficult to talk about the curriculum and talk about all the different objectives that we're trying to get them to understand and the different standards, that the state standards that we're trying to get them to learn when their basic needs aren't being met. So it's a thing where, you know, you have to, you have to deal with students like very basic needs. And the, the main thing is safety. If a student doesn't feel safe in your class, if you don't have a positive relationship with that student and the student's parents for that matter, then it's, you know, it's not a safe place. Why would I want to learn math from you if I can't trust that you really care about me? <laughs> Those first years are huge. What I was surprised with uh, reading your book, though, was the fact that if that early nurturing doesn't happen, with some people, it's almost like you missed the you missed the boat completely, and you can never go back to that. That that's what I found most fascinating about uh, what you know the condition that Sonia had was that I had no idea that you know you can't go back. <laughs> there's, no, there's no way to really go back and and. Uh, sort of reprogram the person's brain to to say, no, you know, there are safe spaces and there are people that you can trust and there are people that you can love. You know, I found that really fascinating in the book and the way you told the story as well. Yeah, I wondered, you know, we're almost out of time, but certainly when I was writing it, one thing I wondered about is intergenerational trauma you know, one generation to the next, and if certain populations are more vulnerable or not. So, you know, I described the history in Russia there of of this multiple disruptions they've had from invasions and hunger and uh, purges and all this type of stuff. And one thing I wondered about, but I just didn't feel qualified to explore, obviously, is are there parallels in other communities? Are there parallels in the African-American community because of the legacy of slavery and the disruption that it did to families and how long that disruption takes to write. Now, I, I did ask a psychiatrist about it. It was like he compares different cultures. He said it's not possible to diagnose a whole group of people, that there can't be collective trauma. That was his perspective. I don't know how to answer the question, but I certainly wondered. I would think generational trauma can be passed down because if your parents, if your grandparents, if your great grandparents 
were dealing with some sort of trauma that they could never really overcome, that in their raising of their children, that trauma was going to make an appearance. And, and like you said, you compartmentalize, but where does it come out? Yeah. <laughs> so imagine generation after generation of dealing with whatever the trauma was, never really taking care of, uh, of or never really addressing the trauma that they dealt with, or even having the bibliography or vocabulary to be able to do that. Raising children probably the same way that they were raised or trying to go the opposite direction. But either way, it gets passed down from generation to generation. And, and uh, I, it was a study I read once where they were trying to figure out whether there was a trauma gene that's passed on. Uh, through generations. And, and it was about a, uh, it was an African American scientist who was looking at, you know, is it, can it be a trauma gene passed on? But really, I think it's, it's about the experiences of, you know, just one generation passing down what they learned from the previous generation before. And it's hard to break those chains and it's hard to break those habits. So I think about my father and his generation and my grandmother's generation. Therapy wasn't a thing for them. And it was actually stigmatized. So just by me accepting uh, that invitation from my principal and assistant principal at the time, and and I actually giving myself permission to be hurt (laughs) and to feel hurt and express hurt and express pain, that breaks the cycle for my own kids. You know, they've now seen, you know, when daddy's in pain, he goes to the doctor when daddy's in pain. He has to talk to somebody. You know, he'll go to a therapist and it's okay to do that. So I'm passing on now something that is a positive thing, you know, in my family line, but I had to break that cycle of, uh, you know, my parents, my grandparents, and probably my great grandparents. Mm-hmm. 